let's put this up where we because yeah. we were we were about to dive into something. Yeah, we're, we're we're doing something kind of cool for your first one, right? It's like right. we're at a restaurant. It's like dinner for five. Right. Or, yeah, it's it's very casual. It's very old school Hollywood. I you know, I'm usually against doing things in cafes and restaurants, but you know, it's also the pilot. Things yeah, will change. There you go. You know, I'm gonna need to recast you. I'm sorry. That's, Notes came down. Uh, <laughs> dude, that's that's happened before. I'm good. I'm good with that. <laughs> uh, that happened to me when I was an actor. I'm fine. I'm, I'm used we to are that. eating on mic, and I do apologize for that. But it gives it texture. It's good. <laughs> It feels French. We're about to dive into what is essentially the meat of this podcast, so good place to start. So welcome to Word Tetris. I don't have an intro for it yet. Essentially, the premise is there's all these podcasts about writing, but they're always, they're not really about writing. What they're about is breaking. They're yeah. about the creating the story, and then the podcast. Everyone skips over the part, skips over some very important part, and then they get <laughs> to selling it and working it. Awesome. No one I feel is ever really talking about what might be the most important part, which is going back into it and breaking it down and building it up and rewriting it. That's the, a good point. And that's, the, that's a great idea for a show. And the phenomenon of the title is inspired by you. <laughs> where one day... Well, it's an old phrase. It's not me. It's, it, it's, you gave it to me. Yeah. So one day I'm working on my what, what, what is currently my latest sample and so screenwriting programs have a unique feature that no other, no other word processor programs has. You can't do what, what I'm about to describe on a word. You'll be working on the script. You'll change something and like you look and you've lost three pages on the back end. And then you, it all rolls up. Yeah. It rolls up and then all of a sudden you've lost three pages. And it's like, whoa, wait, whoa, I didn't do anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I put that on Twitter and you said, as it's known in the industry, word Tetris. Yes, exactly. The, the, the weight, the physical weight, and we, I use the word weight, not everyone does, but I, I'm old. Um, the idea of what a script feels like, what the length should feel like, is very instinctive. Like, you know, features, I once turned in a feature at a flat, like, 100 pages, and the studio was very angry with me, and they said, you know, this feels light. I said, I, I, I worked on the first movie of this franchise. The first movie's runtime was 90 minutes. Like, this is the right length. I said, yeah, but you can't go out with this. We can't, we're gonna cut, but we need 100-something pages. And so, you know, romantic comedies, you want them to feel like 10x or 110, you know, big sci-fi dramas like buck, you know, 11x or 120. Uh, and then for, you know, scripts, for TV scripts, there's like, there's this gray zone around 60 where it's like, get up towards 60. And if it's a pilot, you're at 60. But if for a, shoot, a shooting script for a television show is often... 42. 42, you know, and, and yeah, really, and, and, and different shows are like, for the exact same crew, the exact same crew, the exact same directors, librarian scripts shot out at 50 to 55. Same running time, too, same network. Librarian scripts shot out at 45 to 48. That's, that's six pages. That's an act. You know, so where'd that go? Right. And, 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 and that, the physical space, the, the, the interaction of the writer with the physicality of the space of the script is often ignored. And to a great degree, a lot of that's part of our writing process is, is that feel of whether the script feels right or not. So right. it, and, and the art of, this is 62 pages, it's really going to be like 58. I just read a pilot that was 62, and I was yeah. like... I get why it's 62, because it's the pilot, but yes. this is not. And, and this is, like, when I wrote the, the Magnum script that didn't go, I turned it into network at 53 pages. And they said, look, this is great, and it feels light. Even though we know this is actually what you shoot it. I said, I know, but you're going to give me four pages of notes. So now I'm going to turn it into the right length of the network. And that is not something when you're at film school talking about, you know, the dramatic circle do they tell you about? Like the fact that this physical space of the script is actually something fairly important. Um, and that was a long-winded way to get into the premise of your show. Right. So, so but whenever I have a chance to be didactic, I'm not going to pass it up. What was always, for me, the first challenge of the latest sample. Let's start there. Yeah. So I write the latest sample. The it's eternal really samples. <laughs> yeah, that, this is the... This is the quest of the young writer. But the thing like is always that... Always two samples, always no more than a year old. You know. But the thing about the samples now is... They're not just samples now. Like back in the day, it was just you wrote, you wrote the you wrote back of a show, and you sent that out, mm. and you got it work. And now it's like you have to write a sample that can possibly be a show. I, I don't know about that. I think that that's unfortunately samples have become shows, and that has skewed the purpose of the sample mm -hmm. because it's like people won the lottery. And by the way, almost none of those shows were happy experiences or worked well. But the, you know, TV is such a shark now, so all-consuming of content that that the, the market's distorted. But 
you know, I think that a good sample spec, even though now we don't imitate shows, what it needs to do is show certain tools that you are proficient at. You know, I've read plenty of specs where I've hired the writer and said, that's a great spec. It's not a show, it's a great pilot. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing is, now networks will go, this is a great pilot, and make the show, and mm -hmm. it was never a show, mm -hmm. and then that show's in trouble in six episodes, you have to call a guy that need to come in and fix it. Mm -hmm. So it, it's more like, it's not the bar's been set high, it's the production bar has dropped really low in a weird way. <laughs> right. I don't mean low pejoratively. You know? Right. I uh, had written the latest one, originally clocked in at 57, yeah. got it down to, I think it was 54. Yeah. Sent it out, took, took a meeting on it, and in the meeting, the person goes, it's cool, you can write. Um, I don't, what is this about? <laughs> and I tell her, and, the, and she goes, none of this is in the script. Yeah. And for a long time, I sat with that, because I was like, it feels like it's in the script. Yeah. I thought it was in the script. Do I need to explicitly say it somewhere? Like, you know, six months go by after that. I had made some other changes. I went back and did a fresh rewrite with a clean head. I go into it, and just by happenstance, in the process of writing it, um, I had rewritten the scene and changed to move some things around and had to, had to, by nature, add a line of dialogue in the very end of the script, like literally like the second to last page. Yeah. That the moment I wrote it, I had to, I stopped writing yeah. for the day. And I was yeah. like, I nailed it right here. What we used to say in the leverage writer's room is go to the arc light. Like when a writer really killed a pitch, it's like, you're done for the day. Go to the arc light. <laughs> right. right on the street. Go see a movie this afternoon. And you've it, earned your, it you've might have been the first time where I felt that experience of, I got it. I, yeah. No, no, I'm good. If anyone tells me, if anyone tells me this is, I didn't nail it, then I don't know what to do then because I feel like <laughs> I, I got it. Well, that, that, trust me, I'm, I'm 50, man, and there's still times where I'm like, if this isn't good, I don't know how to write television. <laughs> and, you know, and we still don't make those shows, but that's, that's we're always making shows with other people. How do you uh, know when you nailed it in a rewrite? Like, how, how many, first of all, I mean, I, I, everyone's got their own pace. You know, everyone, some people, they need one rewrite, some people need 60. Like, I don't know. It, it's, everyone does it differently. I, for ages, rewrote as I wrote. So I would start each day by rewriting the previous day's stuff, mm -hmm. and all the way up to that point. So by the time I would hit the first draft of a movie, the first act had been through 10 drafts, hmm. effectively. And so... You would rewrite from page one? Yeah. Oh and I would just, I would, I would not heavily rewrite, but I would just reread because a lot of the, the experience of writing is getting back into the mind space of that script. To be fair, I, that's how I wrote my first book, yeah, was and, I rewrote and, it. And, and that's what happens, right? You, you're trying to get back into that voice. Um, I've been a lot stricter, and it's really helped with page count, I've been a lot stricter about separating out the, the creative space and the revision space. And, and to a great degree that's helped me as I've, I've gotten older and, and just more tired uh, and doing more stuff, is giving myself permission to suck and just suck hard and just fill the, like, write down 60 pages of what the hell it is and then go and fix it. That might be the biggest hurdle I'm still getting past mentally as a young it, it writer. It takes years, it literally to, takes years. To, yeah. Like, for me right now, the way I'm able to get through 60 pages is I have to believe that it's awesome. Mm. And then I can get through the 60 pages, and then I break the walls down on it. But it's fascinating. I mean, Eric Heisserer, who's a, a friend of both of ours, mm -hmm. um, was on Twitter today. And he said, like, oh, the inner enemy has visited me and is telling that. me that I don't know how to write. And It's like, that dude, you got nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, like, I actually once... I actually once explained something. I said, you know, the challenge here is Eric Heisler took a swing at this, and he's a genius. And right. If he can crack it this way, then we're in trouble. You know, give that guy some... And, and you know, I, I always say, like, just pound for pound. I know very few writers as good as Eric. Ironically, I am almost never plagued by that demon, probably because I'm a genial hack. But, but probably because I'm very much more... I start as a stand-up, and stand-up is iterative and you do it and you go out and you fail on a regular basis and fail fairly constantly on a regular basis. Yep, you're used to failing. Yeah, and so for shows, for, for TV shows, for TV scripts, anything that you write, so often in your head, you want to show it to someone and they love it. Mm -hmm. And that never works with a joke. And so I've internalized, this is, this is tough. You know, this, the process here is iterative. And even, you know, uh, it's no secret I'm working on the King Killer television show for Pat Rothfuss's adaptation of Pat Rothfuss's books and I turned in the outline for the first episode and I said this is wrong this, it, this, this document's intention is to be wrong early so now rather than me agonizing over it for endlessly 
get your opinions in early and then we'll get something at the end that we're all happy with rather than I'm happy with something and now you're peeing on my beautiful piece of art. Right. You know, because television is a collaborative medium. Do you think television is a is better breaking the writer's walls down than perhaps features are? Because I feel like that process comes early in the room. Like you're, you're uncovering the problems yes, from oh, day one. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's always tricky when you bring feature writers in a TV room because it's a different ethos and a different work style and different approach to the work. But, but getting back to the thing you were saying, like I didn't know what it was about, so often we have a great scene or a great character in our heads as writers. Mm-hmm. We forget... You know, there's all drama basically boils down to who wants what, why can't they have it, why do I give a shit? And and why do I give a shit is the why am I writing this? Mm-hmm. You know, even and even in the, the King Killer show document, the show's sold. Like where it'll be announced by the time you're, this is out, but you know, where it's sold and, and it's going. And I ask, why are we writing this show five times in that document? Because that is the thing that we lose and we miss, and suddenly Particularly for TV, particularly for mass market TV, you lose track of it because the mecha, it's, it's a giant train and it's so hard to make and there's so much and then there's marketing and then you're selling it and then you're casting it and it's, it's this huge thing and you forget, oh, that's right, it has to have a reason to exist. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a fun genre reason, even if it's just I want to explore this corner of genre entertainment that hasn't been explained, explored before, there has to be a reason right. that you're telling this story. Yeah, right, that's what... And, yeah, and, and you lose track of that so easy. And again, that's why sometimes on broadcast shows you have to pull outside people in to just sometimes ask again fresh what's this about can you go too big do you feel like sometimes people are coming up with stretches for what it's about like for example I love the player but the player um, when you told me last year well what it was about was the police state and the, the sense of loss of control yeah it's hard to get that through in a story about a dude who wants revenge for his dead wife well because that's what you you that's the that's the text right that's the text and the subtext you know you can't sell people on this is our this is our treatise on the panopticon uh, and surveillance. Uh, you know, you sell them on this is kick-ass action, right. and then you get them there. I mean, that was the trick with leverage. It was a Robin Hood show, and then once a year we'd get an f- angry phone call from Atlanta, and that's why Michael Wright was great. He would protect us. Once a year we get an angry phone call from Atlanta, like, is this anarchic socialism on our network? I'm like, yeah, it is kind of. <laughs> We're basically arguing that violence in the name of rebellion against a corrupt state is a completely legitimate moral choice. <laughs> but also, there's like a funny heist in Act 4 all the time, so we just like blow past that shit. Every show has to have something that you're reaching for. You know, Librarians was about responsibility. Librarians is about personal responsibility and, how the, and, and growth, and about how the world, isn't, the world isn't never what you think it's about. Right. You know, it's, and you're not who you think you are. You know, if you look at the first two seasons of Librarians I was on, it was very much Welcome to the Magical World, the real world, and then the second season is all about, oh, I can't be the person I used to be to live in this world anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's all about leaving behind your old identities. And, and then the arc has, to a certain degree, uh, been the same in, in future seasons. You know, Dean has a slightly different tweak on it. Now, how much of that was in the pilot? When you're writing pilots, there's a, there's a tricky balance between how much of this is setting up my world, how much of this is telling whatever the, the single story of the pilot is, and how much of this is telling you what this show is actually about. That's, that's craft. I mean, that's, that's the thing that it's like, the answer is write a lot and fail a lot, and then you learn how to do it. I mean, I think you, I think you and I have talked about, I, mean, I promise that the last sentence of the pilot's the most important sentence of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On a great pilot, on a truly great pilot, and there's a lot of measures for great, that launch shows, the last sentence of the show, really this is this great thing I adopted years ago, and it wasn't me who came up with it, that the midpoint of a movie is actually a false ending to the movie. That is what ep- that I did see you tweet about, and I've been yeah. actually using that philosophy ever since. Yeah, and, and there's and I use it for pilots now too, because all structure is fractal. But to a great degree, on a pilot, the the last sentence is is kind of your or your last scene is your thematic state. You know, the player it's a little more veiled, but it's essentially I'm in, and the the theme of that scene is both Charity and Philip's characters know they're lying to each other. They they are the last scene of the player is not about Phil. The last scene of the player is charity scene. And that we had talked about the fact that the heartbreak of the player was the next episode we were gonna shoot was the one where you find out charity's the, actually the mastermind behind the whole thing. And we've been lying to you, and the girl who was like cute girl sidekick in the first nine episodes is actually the genius. Mm-hmm. So but you know, that's broadcast network for you. Two perfectly great examples. What's the last line of Lost? The two-hour version of the Lost pilot. It's they hear the they hear the they they basically hear the broadcast that's the French woman repeating over and over again 
how many iterations it's been. In the last line of the pilot, Charlie's like, guys, where the hell are we? And that is both emotionally and geographically and thematically the statement of the show. Right. It's a show about exploring where the hell are we and what does it mean. The Breaking Bad pilot, and look, there's a reason. Vince Gilligan and those guys, I mean, that show's brilliant. Better Call Saul is more brilliant. Uh, you know, because now it's like people who learn to make the best television show on TV now just going out and hitting, you know, hitting it out of the park from day like, one. Yeah, from day one. Um, that might be the only time a spinoff actually deserved to be Emmy nominated. Oh yeah, it's and it's because it's it's them practicing their craft in a different way. Yeah, it's a different show. Yeah, it's um, and the color palette and the, and the directing level. But anyway, the last line of uh, Breaking Bad, he's gone home. He's had his day. He's, you know, he's had his traumatic days, but in his underwear, he murdered some dudes, he, like, gassed some dudes, he's been in the RV, he's made meth. He gets into bed, and just too hyped to sleep, he rolls over and starts to have sex with Skylar. And he, like, totally surprises her. And Skylar is surprised, and her line is, um, Walt, is that you? The entire premise of the show is, Walt, is that you? The entire exploration of the show is, Walt's not who you think he is. Mm-hmm. And that, that the... The sh- I, I, I literally threw that script across the room when I read it. When I read that script, that was in my old office in Hollywood, and I finished that script and I threw it across the room. I'm like, you, I, this is genius. This is flawless. <laughs> and, and go back and watch The Economy. And by the way, Breaking Bad, oh my God, the most brilliant, subtle, beautiful piece of American television writing. His students hate him. The dude is rude to him at the car wash. Like, there's stuff in there that is so plot hammery, that is so, like, if you gut it as a network note, you'd go, oh, God, really? He's literally, got, he's literally has a handicapped son. And in the beginning, you're just like, why? That is the thing I think. I used to have a card up in the, the writer's room where it just had, like, the word subtlety with the Ghostbusters sign through it. Because <laughs> it's better to make sure people get why they give a shit mm-hmm. and then ease back to the point where they don't quite understand why they're so engaged than to not have them be engaged and not care. Mm-hmm. That's the cardinal sin of art, is that you don't care. And, yeah. and, and, and you have to sacrifice everything for that. You know, subtlety, craft, like, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's, it, it's as, as clunky as a lot of other stuff in the book is, there's a reason Save the Cat is in the vocabulary of, of executives, because, yeah, there's times you go, no, we're not, saving, we're not saving the cat here, but at least it gives you a common vocabulary for why am I engaged by this character? Right. Now, the problem is that meets you means that you have to sympathize with that character. That's not always what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But it is a good shortcut for why do I care? How many times do you have to go through drafts before you're like, all right, it's all here. This is what I need. The amount of times I've been hit with other from other writers with a saying, the pilot's never done. Um, you know, the, pilot, you know the, the, the script's never done. I'm like, at some point, it's got to be done because we have to shoot it. I don't know. It, it, I think that it's got to be shot, it's going to be edited. Um, I think part of being a mature writer is understanding where you are in the process. You know, I just finished Labor of Love script called Shanghai. It's about Shanghai in the 30s. It's my big, it's my deadwood. Researched it for five years, read letters, private letters of Chinese gangsters in the translations and got access to a database of the original newspapers from the 30s. I just lived this thing. And, and I finished the script and I thought, this is good enough to get the studio to understand what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. and get me financing. Mm-hmm. And then we did that, and they had notes like, all right, I'll do those notes. And when we get a director, and I'm hoping that Barrett Nalluri is up next week, and I'm kind of hoping I can talk him into doing it. Um, because I loved working with him on the player. He's a, he's a genius. He's great. And he's a great guy. He's just like a great guy. to. If you're going to spend 16 hours on a set with somebody, it should be with Barrett. It's like, okay, the script's next draft of the job is to attract the actors. The next draft is to be shootable. You know, is to understand if you want to write a beautiful, pristine thing that's done, write a book. You know, that's just, yes. that's your job. Yes. You know, and, and, and it's, I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of your work, but, but understand it's not a show, it's a blueprint for a show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still has to be the best blueprint ever. But and it still has to engage people and make you give a shit and be passionate and make actors read it and go, oh my god, I want to play this person, fully knowing it's not the end result. When you get to that point, it can be free because because also here's the thing, the, the good thing that happened to me earlier in my career. I've ri- written some, the two favorite scripts I've written. The two things that up until Shanghai, the people seem to dig it would say, John, this is the best thing you've ever written. I've had people go, this is better than you. Like you're not as good a writer as this script. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. <laughs> two movies that'll never be made. And 
it was, and both of them fell apart because of business deals, not because the show, the script, nobody didn't like the script. The, one of the script was in, one of the scripts was cast and greenlit four times. Oh, really? And just because, and every time the actor fell out, and it was just one of those things. And the other one was, uh, a, a, eventually became a big franchise for another production company at the studio. It was a good lesson to go, honestly, whether this stuff gets made or not, because what you're in your head, in your, in your head of freelancer head and your writer head, it's like, if I make this the best script ever, and I also call this good boy syndrome, because, and I'm not the guy, I think Craig Mazin actually uh, coined that. Yeah, Craig Mazin did it, um, or John did where it's essentially a lot of writers were good students, mm-hmm. and so they want to get an A, and in some part of their head, it's like, if I get an A on this script, you'll have to make it. And life doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I walk the earth knowing the two best things I've written in my life will never be shot. And internalizing that is valuable. And, you know, every writer has, like, if you've shot an episode, there's some compromise. There's some. And if there's no compromise, even then, you manage to get that one across the finish line. And now you've got to try to make more perfect ones. If you're going to work in television, you know, you have to get past that. And... There is, I have jokingly like written a grade on the front of a script just to like give somebody like, yeah, yeah, good job, yeah. And remind them it's not the fucking point, you know. It's, the, the, the script is a communicative act, you know. It is you telling the story, and again, I can't remember who said this, um, and, and it, was a, it was a great lesson to me because look, I've never been, I've, I've had many struggles over my career and I infamously got fired uh, a lot in my 30s for attitude and collaboration issues, uh, was, the writer's the only person who's seen the whole movie in his head. And so you're trying to describe it to everyone and you get frustrated like, it's the thing, it's the thing in my head. Don't you see it? And they're like, no, dude, we're like, we're wandering in the desert and you're describing the vague outlines of buildings. Yeah, that's, that's all we got, man, right. even on the page. Right. And so, you know, understanding that your job is over a series of drafts to bring other people to the thing you see in your head mm-hmm. is a good, it, it, internalizing is, that process is, is a valuable thing. Because otherwise it will paralyze you. If you if you start to think, if I write this script absolutely perfect, then it'll get made, you're dead. You're done. Right. Because it'll never be perfect in your head, and then it won't get made, and then you'll psych yourself out and hurt your own ego. And then sometimes you'll think it's perfect, it's mm. good to go. Like I don't I'm I have no ill will towards the version of the of the pilot of the sample that I sent out for meetings at the beginning of the year. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not better now. Yeah, it always gets better. Right. It always gets better. Um, you're, but, a better, you're a better writer tomorrow than you will be today. But sometimes it's hard to acknowledge that, where it's like you get the notes back and you're like, oh, these aren't the things I expected notes on. Like something I always was getting notes on back in the early days. Yeah. Early days, but still the early uh. days. But notes I was getting on when I first moved out was, this is unshootable. This is an unshootable thing. We, I don't know. Like I have a, I have a director friend. Every time he reads a script of mine, every time without fail, he'll say these words. I don't know how I shoot this. I'm like, you're not shooting it. <laughs> you know, I, and someone gave me a, a good advice once, which was, write it however the hell you want to write it, because this is the only time you're going to get to do that. Yeah. That, but that, then first, I, but, that first draft's your only shot, man. Right. But then after, then I, after I wrote that, it still was it's still you know a crazy urban fantasy thing, so it's not completely shootable on a indie budget no hell no yeah. you shoot on a studio budget maybe but then you know I'm going for my first meetings and the notes come back across the couple meetings I took on it and the notes are fairly consistent of the first thing everyone asking what the fuck is this like yeah. I, I mean it's cool you have a cool world yeah. I don't know why I need to care about this person yet yeah. and I was like okay I guess I have to work on that now here's the next step I go back I work on it and I have to just find a way, and it. What I think is the might be the mark of a good TV writer, is the ability to quickly break down the walls. Because like what happened to me was, I did a new pass. I changed what I could. I tried to fix what I could. Try to find moments to add what I could, and I felt I felt good about it. I felt good enough to resend it out to the people yeah. I met with and be like, "Here's the new version based on your notes. Yeah. Thanks for meeting with me. It was a great time." Hopefully we'll work together in the future. And I was like, okay, I'm done with it. And then I went and worked on another thing. And then that other thing ended. And then I'm like, okay, well, I got nothing to do right now. And I know that someone else wants my script again. So let me go back into it. And I go back into it. And and there was less pressure, right? Because you weren't trying to do it. Right. Right. And having there now being five months of separation Mm -hmm. between those two 
great two drafts. Yeah. Going back into it a couple of weeks ago is yeah. when I went, oh. No, I occasionally joke because look, I've been I've been writing a long time, and there's movies of mine that people sometimes try to make from like 2003, and I'll go back and. Did you have a draft of that? Because we think we have talent that really loves that, always loved that project. Like, yeah, all right. I go into Box.net because Dropbox wasn't around yet. And it's still in there. I, I finally moved everything over to Dropbox. And, and I had everything on Google. And Drive. I read it. I'm like, wow. 2003, John Rogers was not quite as smart as he thought he was. Like, now with, with hindsight, right? Now I'm like, oh, that was, there's a better second act in there. And that's a little clunky. And I know where you stole that. Like, you know, blatantly know where you stole that from John at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to hit that deadline. But, the, but I also think a valuable thing to remember is, for TV writing anyway, and I guess for lesser feature writing, is you will write a lot. If you have a, a career, you will write a lot. Um, I've written 20 to 25, depending how you count them, pilots and movies. I've written or rewritten dozens of television episodes. And that, that literally thousands of pages. And, and to think like, this 50 perfect pages is gonna change my life. Right. You have, to, I, you have to at the same time go, yes, I need to make this perfect. The other times, don't go down. Don't die around the Yeah, don't, don't die on that hill. Like, choose, choose your hill. But then my question is, how long does it take before you're able to quickly, like, condense that, that five-month break gap that I gave my script to then let it breathe and release the pressure? Sometimes, it, you, sometimes you can't compress it. Um, sometimes the trick is it's a vague note, and the thing you're wasting your time on just trying to figure out how to address the no. The most valuable question, I can't, I always say that the two things I wish somebody taught me in my 30s was uh, anger is a luxury and um, every, every criticism is the tragic result of an unmet need. And so when you get a note, I'll ask, you know, when I'm getting the note, I'm getting it explained to me. And it's a good exec, we have a conversation. When it's a bad exec, it's like, here's the note. Yeah, that's you what happened. Have, yeah, it was a good, good exec, good conversation. Yeah. You want to have a conversation? It's like, no. Like, all right, well, this, this is going to be fun. Um, but, like, somebody great, like per, Perlino Bakwe was the, the, my exec at NBC, and now she's over at NBC Uni, will have it. it. It will actually be a conversation. And I've asked her, I'm like, you know, she was given a note, one of the first notes things we had for, the, I think, the player. And, uh, I said, well, what do you want to feel? I said, well, I want to feel like there was still a future in this relationship between Philip and the wife. Like, it's not a dead thing. I went, oh, that I can do. Like, the Was that not there? No, it, it, it was much more the relationship was over. Like, there was no... Oh, really? Yeah, it was like, it was much more... Because uh, I was trying not to do the thing where you fridge the wife and feel like you're motivating the Do you death. remember we had that conversation yeah, we, in we DMs? Did, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was specifically... I am trying to subvert this trope, and NBC doesn't understand it's a trope. Uh, and understandably, because it's a trope that but only... But you told me that you went to the room one day and literally slammed your hands on the table and said, I'm not fridging the wife. I'm not fridging the wife. <laughs> and then I had to explain what, what fridging, fridging the wife was. Because they did say, like, wouldn't it be easier if she's not part of the conspiracy, she's just dead? I'm like, no, then I'm fridging the wife, and I'm not fridging the wife. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, great. Um... <laughs> You think that these people I would be like... I deflect the Moment. No. Well, the amount we, of comics that they're adapting. No, we forget. We forget. They don't... I don't read them. If they read them, they read the one given to them. Like, if they're fans... There's... there's, And I've talked about this online. Like, there's fan space and creator space. Mm -hmm. And it's really valuable to remember how separate they are. And the fact that the internet allows them to cross over is an aberration. And not always a healthy one. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're not... They don't, I mean, Gail Simone's a friend of mine, so, uh, you know, th th that comes readily to mind. Um, you know, they're, they're not conversant with that. I mean, you know, it's it's a whole new, and why should they be? That's not where they make their money, you know? They, they don't give a shit. But, like, I was like, good, let me let me address that. And it's a much better scene. But there was a little bit of the, and I, I started with, with Dean Devlin, actually, and Dean and I, at a, you know, Dean's one of the best editors I've seen in my life. He should be an editor. He's wasted. He's wasted as a big-time producer. Um, He's the best editor I've seen in my life. And, and it's, every now and then we'd be stuck and, and he'd be, need a rewrite for something. They're like, well, what do you want to feel? He's like, I just want to feel like she's in danger. I'm like, oh, that I can do. Because, again, all art is communicative. I'm trying to get you to feel something. I'm trying to convey how I feel about something to you and get a similar response. So keeping it in these sort of primal tones is kind of an, important and crucial rather than well, if I do that, then they can't say this line three scenes later, and that line's really great. And it's like, yeah, it is great, and it's it's important, and a great line is a great line. But is it is it 
more important? Is that line more important than how you want the scene to feel? Because also you get on set and an actor will go, I don't think that's gonna. I, I don't think I'm gonna give you the mood you want if I say that. Uh, you know, and sometimes they're being honest, and sometimes they're being now, feral children, like all actors are. But yeah. The next question is, can you can you achieve that? Like it's like if you're the if you if you're writing it, of course, eventually you do need notes. But yeah. there's a part of the process where you don't have notes right away. Just you fit, like I know for me, it's first draft, then second draft, then notes. Yeah. That's how I go. And well, so it's like if you, when. So it, how do you self-edit? How do you right, self? Yeah. Exactly. Um, look, that's one of the most valuable skills in self-revision. Without letting self-doubt chew you up, is really really hard. I think one of the most uh, important things is to give yourself that space where like I'll hop around in the script I'll go I'll, I actually write from both ends and move toward the middle really yeah so interesting so I write the opening then I'll hang around the ending because I've outlined properly I'm not fucking winging it I'll, I'll write the ending and, and I'll write give myself you know a lot of there's a, a, a great advice is write the thing you're excited about that day don't worry you'll get there you'll fill in the rest of the script it's okay if there's enough exciting things about the script you love the script will happen and I, I do that in the morning and then the afternoon I go back to something I read and you're not in the heat of that moment and so you're able to sort of put on your critical eye and say you know and, and apply first principles am I, am I getting in here late as late as possible am I getting out as early as possible is every line doing the emotional work of the scene is every line doing two bits of work like can the scene do two or three pieces of work at the same time same time that's just Start with those first principles and then wrestle with it on a scene by scene basis, and and you get there. But again, it's it's literally you do it a lot and you fail. You know, every writer at my stage of their career is, is still giving people a script and they've gone, dude, no, like what is this? Um, <laughs> and not everyone can be Eric Kaiser handing in the first draft of Rival. And yeah, it's just like what? Uh, you know, he sent me. I think it, did I tell you? Like, you told me the story, but tell it here. Yeah, yeah. He sent me. So Eric's a friend of mine. Um, and he said, oh, I'm running a rival, this Ted Chang story. I'm like, Ted Chang's totally unadaptable, man. But I'm like, good for you. That's great. And he had optioned it himself. Like, like everyone, yeah, yeah. Like, Eric Heisberg carried that around on his back for years. You know, turning down, turning down production commitments because they wanted it to turn it into a fucking alien invasion movie. Is driving his agents insane. You know, as they, he turned down green light after green light. Um, but so he sends me the script. He's like, it's a time thing. I said, I kind of remember the story. He said, I'm just, I need somebody outside it to read it just to make sure I'm, it's not too confusing and, and to maybe find an anchor so I make sure the audience understands. You want the audience to go, oh shit, it's a time jump, not, uh, oh wait, is that a time jump? You know, you want that realization. That's a, uh, and I was so condescending in the email. I still at the emails. I'm like, Eric, of course, no problem. Make some time tonight. I know this is important. And and that night, my wife walks in. I'm laying in my studio in my in my office on the couch in the dark. <laughs> and and my wife's like, what's what's going on? I said, I just really hate Eric Iser right now. <laughs> you tell me that part. And Sorry. I just and I text. I emailed him back. And I the email literally leads. Fuck you! It's it's great. He goes, yeah, but I'm worried about. It. I'm like, don't fucking worry. You're fuck. I'm worried about the third act revelation. Fuck you. It's fucking brilliant. Like I, I just literally chewed his ass out on the email. Like, oh yeah, did you just give this to me so I could just feel bad about myself for two weeks? This is your rough draft. And then my only consolation when I read it, I was like, well, look, it's a brilliant script. It's one of the best scripts I've, I've read certainly in the last five years. But he'll never get a director. I'll get Denis Villeneuve. Well, there's your Oscar. Like, I just, like, as soon as he said he got Denis Villeneuve, I'm like, it'll get nominated. I knew that. So clear that, like, four months of your life out so you can go to all those other award show dudes because your wife better buy some dresses and you better get some good suits. busy. So, but not everyone can do that. And also, who knows how many drafts he did before saying that. Yeah, um, no, but, but that's, I think... Look, if we're looking for like you're a writer and you're listening to the podcast, you're trying to do the work. I think it's very important to separate out the thing that makes you love the script. And and I actually do it I actually do it in like physical space. Like I write on the computer, I do notes on my own scripts in a notebook. Really? I have a Moleskine. Wait, hold on, I'll show you. Ooh. Is this is a famous notebook? This is one of the famous notebooks. Look, every project oh. has its own notebook. I wanna open it. So and some of them are not full because some of them are new. So cool. So where's and that's that's, just, Shang, that's the Shanghai one. 
So it's literally a Moleskina for each one. Oh, cool. And so, and they all stay and coherent. Like labeled yeah, stuff. don't open the King Killer one. You're not allowed to see that I'm one. I'm not opening up any of them. I just one, held it in my hand. That one gets, yeah, it's like, hold on, let me see how bad it would be. Yes, and there's a giant book three revelation like on page two. All right, just. <laughs> it's okay, I haven't read any of the books no, yet. No, <laughs> no, it's just saying, like, hey, we could just totally destroy the publicity campaign here on the podcast. But I'm trying to think. I wish I had, the leverage ones were a little more detailed, but this is. Uh, you have such a nice handwriting. I, you know, I actually, I actually practiced it. Really? Um, I knew I wanted to work more in notebooks. I have a, a useless physics degree. You know, look at the look at the colors. Look at the this space. Um, I wish Shanghai is better because it's got the actual editing notes. And that's there. way more. That's way more copy than just sixty page a sixty page script. I mean, you have. Yeah. Like this is this is a full hardback. So that's the the breakdown of the characters in Shanghai. Jesus. You know, and then this is me doing notes. This is me re-breaking the the outline, right? So when I'm in the script, I'm in this like. My headphones are in, and I'm playing. Mu- and my headphones are in, and I'm playing music, and I'm like, "Look at me! I'm filling the page." Because the page is a physical space. Is like that script. Like that's your screenwriter, man. The notebook is me as showrunner. You know, there's there's five. There's four years because I, I doubled up for seasons um, four and five on the notebook. There's four notebooks of leverage out there with me reading every script, rebreaking the outline and actual diagrams of how I felt the emotional acts were going, whether the clue paths were working, and, and it's good to separate that out. Uh, and this is why I found the podcast fascinating. We talked about Word Tetris and it was about the physical artifact of the script is an unexpected right. thing. Right, the, the, whole, the whole point is no one, I feel, is addressing the, the actual nuts and bolts of what happens after the you read the you've written the first draft everyone throw a rock you'll hit a podcast about writing the first draft yeah and throw a rock you'll hit a podcast about what happens after someone buys it but there's all this space in between it, it, the, with the space go, where the, you live most of your young career before yes. you start working right that's the thing I think a big part of it stuff I wish I'd learned earlier was separate don't just separate out those processes don't just and, and separate out uh, brainstorming Creation and revision for me now are three very distinct phases of a project. Where because you're not sitting there doing brainstorming, going, "Oh, will this work?" Don't give a shit. You like, that's why I put yeah. cards up on a board. And when we break a season, when we broke the first season of King Keller, it was whatever we wanted goes on that board. It can always come off, but there's no bad card on that board. That's why I like cards because I can physically move them as they become more important or more relevant. They move. Into I was the a whiteboard guy, and then yeah. I got on cards, cards for that and, reason. Yeah, you never go back to full cards. Uh, the whiteboard is a lie. So. The, what about the whiteboards that have like magnets on them? Yeah, like, they're they're alright, I guess. <laughs> it's still a, it's it's still it's still horrible. Um, so you but you've been in my office, you know that one conference room has one wall yeah. that's like literally twenty feet of cloth I can put you know, the, all ten episodes of King Killer season one are up on the wall right now. Like they're all broken. Uh, and is like hundred there's a hundred something. Why do you even need wall. a writer's room, man? I, <laughs> I didn't do it, I did it with two other writers because okay. I, I so, uh, Lionsgate was nice enough to give me two writers to help break it because I I basically said, It's two thousand pages. Like I'm not gonna be able to do this guy. So uh, two writers will eventually be on staff uh, help me break it. But like separating those phases out where you allow yourself the play space of brainstorming and research and dicking around and then when you feel you've got all that complete when it feels ripe then going to creating and just writing the worst possible first draft you can and I outline pretty exclu- because to me structure is very important I'm not one of those guys who starts typing and finds it like that's not a thing but that, that falls into the creation that's like the outlining creative, like outlining writing phase and then revision for me literally happens in a different physical space like it happens in the notebook with the pens I often do it like not at my office you know I write in, in a couple different places but I do the revisions in a different space and and I know that's weird no it's not that's we're creative and we need physical cues and physical space um, you know defines our emotions and defines a lot of other stuff around us you know, there was a great a great thing I read ages ago, which is so useful now, uh, years later, is that willpower is not a virtue; it's actually a calorie. Like you actually, because they, they they do these studies about people's willpower and how it goes down as they get tired and and hungry, and that's not like you're becoming less virtuous. Your brain needs to burn chemicals to, gre- to burn calories to create the chemicals that allow you to resist temptation and bad habits. So, if you burn that shit out early. That, you're done. And they, they've done studies on this. That essentially, if you have to make a bunch of really difficult decisions early in the day, 
you're fucked for the rest of the day. And that's why, actually, I have the wall. I affectionately call it the wall of habit. My day is, you could you could remove my cerebellum and replace it in my head as I arrive at my office at 9 a.m. It's just a wall of habit. It's just no decisions, no real decisions, nothing that is going to tax me until I get into the writing space. Interesting. And the writing space is where I'm going to burn up my stuff. And I was interested by what you said something earlier where... You look at the outline, you go, okay, what excites me today? And then you go write yeah. it. Whereas, like, the version, the, some of the stories I've always heard was you pick the hardest thing, write Well, then that you're just going to sit there and hate it all day. Yeah. Like, why, <laughs> why would you do that? I mean, that, that's, that, that's that whole thing of, and luckily we're moving past it, but that's the whole thing of, like, artists have to suffer and the, the so true artist that. burns through. Look, I'm suffering the, enough right now yeah, that yeah, I don't yeah. need to do drugs and have, take on a drinking habit yeah, to I, succeed. I and, and, but, <laughs> but it's like, look, you, you need to... Your love is the only thing that will get this thing across the finish line. Mm-hmm. So continue to love it for as long as possible. Right. Uh, and and that should include in the writing time. And there's sections like certainly... And here's the thing. If you're not going to enjoy writing this section of the script, why is anyone going to enjoy watching it? I don't understand the sense. I don't... No, no, I, there's, there's I don't understand. It, but, but it's like, look, oh, this is a bit of pipe where I have to get this out. The, one of the fun things about Leverage is we had enormous amounts of exposition. All right, we have like five gifted comedic actors. Thank God, surprisingly, we actually on a like light drama had five leads. You know that you could literally hand a scene to any one of them at any time, and they could carry the scene. That's unheard of. And it's like, all right, what's the most interesting way to get this bullshit bit of exposition out? Do we do it visually? Do we do it in a montage? We do it in a funny story? Are they arguing about something else? Is it being done in the background as we're doing an emotional scene in the foreground? Like you just. Yeah, and that was our only big challenge. It's the only thing you don't enjoy writing, you know. So, the 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 work then shouldn't be I've got to write the scene that's the hardest. The work should be how do I make this not be a hard scene? Right. And that's, that's God. That I'm taking that home yeah, with me. But but that's and that's the trick. It's like why do I how do I turn this to a scene I want to write? And that, I had one of those in Shanghai. It's like I need to explain something. It was an unanticipated result of a decision I loved earlier in the script, and I've gotten to this point where like ah this. Nobody's going to buy this. I thought people... Like, even reading it, I'm like, no one's going to buy this. All right, I need to write a different scene. It's going to be just chatty bullshit. Like, it's just literally covering... It's, it's, it's covering a bunch of... Chatty bullshit can work if we're in, like, episode seven. Yeah. That's and, but, where it's fine. But it's just... It's literally just... It's tying up all the loose ends so I can get to the, the 12-page finishing sequence. It's like, I got to tie these loose ends. How do I do it? And the answer is, well, you know, there's a traumatic thing that happens here. and That character's upset. What if she's kind of whacked on opium? And they're having an argument during the scene. And she kind of keeps fading in and out. And then it's like, all right, now I have a reason for them to kind of over-explain something or a reason for her to ask questions. And also she's coming at it from a loopy point of view where she's not going to necessarily ask you the question you expect to ask next. And, and, and the scene is adorable. And yeah, it works. And it's actually funny. super character revelatory because it's, she's not an addict. She's like just hard living and she decided to try opium this time. You know, and, it just, and, and as a result, a scene which was going to be I'm doing this tonight for this reason. So am I. We should go together. What about these files? Let's leave them here. Turned into this sort of elliptical thing of what does Shanghai do to you as a city? Like this just, it eats people. Mm. It's like, it's nothing but... And I'm guessing you had fun putting all that together. absolutely. I don't know. There's there's that saying that goes around, and I've heard it on those writer podcasts that we're talking about, where actual writers, professional writers will say this this phrase, and I I forget whose quote it is. I, I hate writing, but I like having written. I li- am I wrong for actually enjoying the art of writing? I like sitting at the keyboard and doing it. Like- well, I think because everyone remembers that struggle. And for a lot of people, the struggle is the, the fight with the internal enemy, the inner enemy, and you don't enjoy that fight, right? Nobody enjoys sitting around feeling like they're not good enough, which is a state a lot of writers spend their time in. Um, but none of us are good enough. You know, I think that that's part of a lot of writers seek perfection and that's why they're great and that's why they're dedicated and that's why instead of going and getting a very nice marketing job we make a couple hundred grand a year we live a very nice life and then you retire to a very nice life you come to Hollywood and you you jump into the one of the most competitive fields in the world you know there's there's, there's literally only a couple hundred people doing this at any given time on the planet earth out of a out of six billion seven billion so that's it's a lot um, and so you don't do that unless you're driven and you seek perfection and you seek to do to your your to change the world. Yeah, if not change the world, change your world. You know, you, without that burning ambition, that burning ambition comes with the price. 
of what made that burning ambition. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I came up in a way where rejection and failure was part of my everyday life and my early creative life because I was a stand-up. And that's not the same for everybody, right? But I think that understanding that this is a physical process that can be hacked, listening to your body and listening to your emotions, and sometimes not trying to be great but trying to be happy will allow you to be great. You know what? I think that that might be how I change my thought processes. I remember I started this episode by saying the way I write is the I believe from the, from the moment I hit the keyboard is this is this is excellent. This is awesome. Otherwise, I can't write it. Yeah. That might change now to maybe I, I think I always felt this way. I just didn't have the words for it, which is that I'm happy with what's happening right yes. now. Yeah. And I'm if That's I'm not allowed. happy. Yeah. And it's, it's this weird thing like we're not allowed to be happy because we're artists. It's like no, man. What? Screw that. Why? I've never. I always hated that. Philosophy. And look, and I have friends who will listen to this podcast and they'll go, "You're insane. That's horrible, or hacky, or shallow, or like they're in pain. There are people who, who whose art comes from pain. Yes, and that's their place. I'm not. Dis- I'm awesome. not. What I'm not. Here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying that that is that isn't true. That's a hundred percent true. But that doesn't mean it's the norm. It is absolutely a case and is one of the ways art. True and, I, art. and that's what I'm like. Anything from the podcast that people can take away is. Don't think you have to drive to other people's definitions of what being a writer is and how writing works. Like, I think that trying to organically find the way that you enjoy the writing process, I think experimenting with physical space and mediums, mm-hmm. like, I can't outline on a computer. I outline in the notebooks that it goes on the computer. The, the script, the script as object, mm-hmm. only exists on the page. And although there is something interesting, uh, Warren Ellis does this because I gave it to him ages ago. He's like, I will use this now. This is useful to me. Uh, you know, because now we do story documents. You do like a two-page story document. And it's just a little thing, the little tiny thing of, I never start with a blank page. Because Movie Magic in particular does this very well. Uh, it imports and recognizes stuff as script elements and will transfer it to script. So if I write like a two to three page story document, I cut and paste that into what becomes the outline. I rewrite that document as the outline. And then I cut and paste that and drop it into the empty script. I'm never looking from the first day, from the first day the story document is written, that's the only day I ever look at a blank page. Every day after that, I'm rewriting something. And, and there's something about that act that is interesting. And it doesn't work always. Like There's some stuff where I wanna feel like, and now the page has begun, and now you have this fade in, yes, this is started, you know. And, you, and, and I might have a different relationship with the physical space of the page than other people do, and I'm sure it's not universal. So And it varies from project to project. TV, I tend to do that. Pilots, I tend to start with a blank space. And then once I like write out that first three pages I've had in my head for five years, I go and take the rest of the outline and drop it in. Like, all right, the rest of this shit is hard. Like, <laughs> now no, let's write for a living. But that's it. Is like I think the big thing for young writers is to understand there's no correct process and to experiment and to experiment in the direction of happiness. You know what? I... We're not talking that. You're I think out. You're I, out on that. No, I'm not. No, no, no. What I'm saying, what I'm about to say is, when we started this recording, which is the first episode of this show, I didn't realize, I knew sort of what this show was. I knew it wanted to be about a rewriting. Because no, I felt like no one was talking about that. But now that we're done, I think what this show is about and what I want people to take away from it is, I'm going to try and bring as many writers as I can to give me as much diff- many different perspectives as I can on how they find happiness in their like that, mo- like how they find happiness in that process. That's good. It's Because it's such a mechanical process. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm going to leave it there. So here's the deal with this show. Uh, some some paperwork we got to get through. So this sh- this show is going up. It's in- this episode is going up in its entirety. Mm-hmm. But I want to try something that I've never tried before uh, with all my podcasts. So there's going to be a Patreon launching at the exact same time that that's, this show is. I wish there had been Patreon when I was like a young comedian. My life would have been a lot easier. Right? Yeah. So patreon.com slash word Tetris. It's already locked in. And what you'll do is after this episode, every episode that goes up from now on, will have the first 20 minutes online for free. After that, you go to Patreon, you give a dollar an episode and you will get the entire episode. Um, that's great. Yeah. That's for, a, a couple yeah. podcasts do that. Right. That's really smart. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, but that's not all. Uh, if you if there will be a three dollar level for three dollars you will get the full episode. In addition, you will get a bonus episode we are going to record uh, when we're done here, when we're yeah. done with this one. And every there will always be bonus episodes. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, and there's and, some, like shorter, more specific yes, stuff. Yes, like, yes, yeah, okay. yes. Yeah, they're really not going to be hour long things. Yeah. And also there there will be the RSS 
feed set up on Patreon, so you just have to take that RSS feed and drop it into whatever podcast app you like to use, and you'll be able to have the episode like it's any other podcast. So that is the plan. We'll see if it works out. Uh, you can hit me up at wordtetrispodcast at gmail.com if you want to send over questions you want me to address with my guests. Uh, head over to twitter.com slash wordtetrispod. You know what you could do is give Patreon members priority on the questions. That's what, that Ken, would, that's that, what Ken and Robin do. That, was, that would be... That's on the, I, what I will do is ultimately... The, the ultimate goal is one of the Patreon bonus episodes of my help is that will be a Q&A. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Patreon submitted Q&A. And as more people come in, you know, I'm banking a few of these right now, so I won't be able to do that right away. Yeah. And also the plan isn't for this to be a 52-week yeah. show. You know, it's going to be runs at 10 to 12 take a few weeks off um, but you only you only get charged when episodes go up you won't be charged during yeah, those breaks that won't happen uh, but yeah go to patreon patreon.com slash word tetris sign up now so that starting you know next week you guys can get the full episodes John where can people find you online uh, I am at johnrog1 j-o-n-r-o-g-1 at twitter.com and uh, twitter.com slash meryl bar m-e-r-r-i-l-l b-a-r-r for me that'll do it I don't have a sign out yet two r's two l's two r's yep. yeah that's nice <laughs> uh, that'll do this episode I don't have a sign out yet and uh, thanks for listening Hey guys, a little tag at the end of this premiere episode. To celebrate the launch of Word Tetris, I have decided to release next week's episode with Sean Ryan early. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash wordtetris and sign up for that $1 tier, and you will get access to that episode right now. And I highly recommend it because that episode was fucking great. Again, patreon.com slash wordtetris or wordtetris.com. Either way, we'll get you there. Sign up for the $1 tier. Get the Sean Ryan episode coming out next week right now. Thank you so much for listening, and I cannot wait to bring you more episodes of Word Tetris coming soon.